Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is our seventh episode, and today we are going to be going back in time to 1977 to talk about Disney's Pete's Dragon. As always, I am Zachary Ortz, I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey Matt, how you doing? Doing good, how about you? Good, ready to uh, take this jump back, back to the 70s. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, you know, it's uh, when I looked into this one after we after we pulled this one out, we kind of wanted to do a little bit of live action stuff, and we wanted to hit something from this time frame. And I realized, you know, this is probably the least loved out of all the ones that we've watched so far. The the one in the need of the most love, maybe uh, we could mm. say it that way. Um, and I don't know. I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, I'm pretty pretty interested to talk about this one. I think this will be different than uh than any of the previous ones we've done so why don't we jump right in here what's your what's your personal history with this movie uh i remember watching this one uh my family had been in alabama while my dad was in the military and we came back to the west coast over to las vegas and my cousins lived next door to us and we would go outside and just have the wildest adventures in the wash behind our house, which was probably incredibly dangerous and unsafe. Uh, <laughs> but they loved Pete's Dragon, and so they introduced it to me. And um, I saw it probably three or four times during that time period. And it was just a really different kind of time in, in my life because it was like we were outside constantly just in you know in the desert in the wash playing in you know in the mud and the dirt and like there's a river back there and all that kind of stuff and you and movies like this really kind of captured my imagination at the time period and then afterwards i just never go back back and watch it because it's never held a really high place in my memory if that makes sense i enjoyed it when i was a kid and i remember enjoying it but it never really stood out to me like other ones did. And so I haven't mm. watched it in t- maybe 20 years uh, before watching it uh, for this. Wow. <laughs> I am uh, I also had not watched it for 20 years, but I also hadn't watched it for 34 years on top of it. Well, not on top of that, 34 years total. Mm-hmm. Um, I basically have no experience with this movie other than I now realize I've definitely played what's the what's her lighthouse song candle candle in, candle in the water candle on the water yeah. yeah definitely not candle in the wind that's a different song <laughs> um yeah i've played i've had people put that in, fr- in front of me either for like cabarets or auditions or something um and i had forgotten that it was from this movie until it came up and i was like oh yeah i guess i've played this song before <laughs> yeah it makes sense for an audition song too that you know it's a real good uh song to show off uh, to show off a singer really well so yeah absolutely and i don't know i don't really know what expectations i had going in i think i knew that it was a mix of animation and live action and so i was expecting something sort of like mary poppins but that was about where my where my expectations stopped 
Um, although I will say I did know that it was 1977 because I had looked it up for the closing of the last podcast. So all I could really think about was that it was the same year as Annie, which is kind of interesting because they are both Annie, the Broadway musical. It's the year that Annie won Best Musical. But they're both stories about orphans who eventually uh, find a home, who need a home and are eventually find a home. Uh, so I don't know what what was in the in the ethos the at the time. Yeah, yeah, what was in the water. So something interesting about 1977 is there were two things that started in 1977, one that you love very dearly and one that I love very dearly. But I think yours has brought you a lot more joy than mine has. Yeah, so 1977 is the year that Star Wars came out. Mm -hmm. um which is just wild to think of uh as we were discussing this i went back to look at the box office receipts from that year and um so pete's dragon came out and it was expected to be like a good performer for uh, for (laughs) disney but it came out and was up against star wars which was in its 25th week when pete's dragon came out and star wars was still the number one movie in its 25th week and you know just there was no other you didn't have other top movies that year you had like saturday night fever and you know a couple of other things but uh you know star wars just completely dominated the box office in a way that's hard to imagine uh anything doing now yeah it's all i if you think about movies from 77 it's just star wars that's basically all that i think about so yeah so and, and then, you know, it's uh, additionally on top of that is Star Wars completely changed the movie business. Uh, you know, it's it's there's few films that have changed the movie business so dramatically as Star Wars did, um, and you can really tell that this is a movie that was made before Star Wars existed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> much to their chagrin, I'm sure. Yeah. And then the other thing that started in 1977 was my very own Seattle Mariners had their inaugural season. Yeah, that's yeah. exciting. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Haven't haven't brought me as much happiness as <laughs> as the Star Wars franchise has brought you, I'd imagine. But well, you know, um, uh, like the Seattle Mariners, uh, there's been some lows from Star Wars in the past few years, so. It has been hills and valleys with that fandom. That is true. Yeah, and I think the drought for Star Wars, the the movie drought, I think it was still less than than the our the Mariners' current playoff drought. So, uh, the fallow period was it was shorter, right? Well, for Star Wars, you had kind of that break in between. What was it, nineteen eighty three with Return of the Jedi, and then. Uh, 1999, so 16 yeah, years. 16 years. Uh, yeah. Before so episode one, but <laughs> but that's a you know that's a little bit off because you had the special editions in there and um, you had uh, you know heir to the empire and all that stuff. So it's I don't know. It's a it's kind of been uh, Star Wars just has fallow periods about every uh, it goes through about five year fallow periods before it gets picked up again. Yeah. Uh, anyway, this isn't a podcast about Star Wars or baseball, so, <laughs> um, 
but Disney was in a bit of their own fallow period in the 70s. Yes. They so if you go back and look at their animated features, they're in 77 they they released two animated features. They have The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh and then they have The Rescuers and then just what four or five months after that Pete's Dragon comes out. Um, but before those movies were released, there had been a four-year break in between animated features, which had only happened one time before since 1937. And I actually didn't go and check, but I, I assume there must have just been some sort of developmental issue on their end. And it's going to be a while until Disney has, until the late 80s when Disney has one of their classic animated features again something that really yeah uh, so and is part of the success what was a lot of the big issue at the time period was that um those veterans that had worked on the early stuff with walt disney mm-hmm. and all of those things uh most of them they were in a transition period and most of them had left um in uh, around the time around the mid 1970s um you had The Jungle Book came out, and I think that's the last film that Walt Disney was involved with personally. Um, and then after that, it's just uh, it's just Slim Pickens, and they lose so many of their veteran animators. They have um, the guy that's kind of the go-to guy at the time period is Don Bluth, which we'll talk about. Um, and, you know, it's... Uh, it was difficult, um, the the relationship there. And so that's a lot of what's responsible. It was just a... a, a they have four years after The Rescuers, uh, after 1977, before they have another animated film again, and then four oh, years yeah. after that. So it's yeah. several four-year breaks that they just are not really putting things out. And all of the films that are in this group just are not the same quality of classics in you know, the public opinion as the the ones before and after them. Yeah, I think some of them have sort of gotten cult following since then. I think right. Robin Hood has its own amount of people who love them. I think Fox and the Hound probably does as well. But yeah, yes. at, the, at the time, just a lot less critically regarded. And we should mention uh, Walt died in 1966. So yes. I assume those people were leaving because the company lost direction or maybe they were there because of their working relationship with Walt Disney himself. So, Correct. Yeah, I, uh, all that makes sense to me. All that tracks to me. Um, some other things that happened in 1977. Jimmy Carter was sworn in as president in January. The This was... Actually, why don't you talk about your stuff, and then I'll talk about music at that time. So, also in January, um, Indiana became the 35th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, which it seemed at the time that it was, you know, just headed down the tracks and was inevitably going to cross the finish line. Only three more states needed to ratify the ERA for it to pass. Oh, man. Um, And... Immediately right after, you have um, uh, Phyllis Schlafly really gets the organization uh, behind her to organize against the ERA. And that's the last state to to ratify the ERA 
uh, before it uh, before it hits the the deadline that had been put into place and um, completely stalls that. So you know, it's uh, the time leading up to 1977 was really like this big movement for uh, the second wave feminism, and 1977 in a lot of ways was. Uh, the beginning of the end, even though I think people at the time probably didn't realize that's what was happening. Yeah, absolutely. And there was also um, sort of tangential to that. There was a big anti, a big anti-gay movement. Um, there was some prominent anti-gay activists, and there was uh, Anita. What was her last name? Anita. Bryant. Bryant, yeah, yeah, Anita Bryant, um, and there's a famous uh, press conference of her getting a pie thrown in her face. So this was turmoil that was all just roiling under the surface or <laughs> at the top of the surface, above above the yeah. water. Uh, Roe versus Wade passed, I think, four years or was put into place four years before this. And mm-hmm. the Hyde Amendment was put into law the year before 1977. So, you know, there's all of this is kind of the climate that this movie comes out in. Yeah. And then in terms of music, this was there was this is like right on the precipice of change for a lot of things. Um, mm-hmm. So there were some big albums that came out this year. Um, the Stranger came out this year. Billy Joel's The Stranger. Uh, Saturday Night Fever, as you said, came out and was just a smash hit for record sales. But then it also was the, it's now widely considered to be the beginning of like new wave music and also the punk movement. Um, So Elvis Costello had his first album this year and then so did The Clash and as did Nevermind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. So it's really just a time of great change. And then 1977 also, what this was the height that record sales would reach before they get taken over by other media. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I was That's surprised to, to, to find that. But yeah, well, cassette tapes and 8-tracks. Um, I know that... Um that disco was such a big movement it it feels like this was kind of uh the apex of where disco was at that it was so big beforehand and then starts with the cultural backlash coming from all these kinds of uh reactionary forces uh starts to decline as well yep absolutely (laughs) um so what was what was your reaction watching this movie now 20 20 years later how did it hit you it's this movie is wild it was i you know it's i remembered all of the bits and pieces of the different things but i don't didn't really really remember this film as a full you know coherent story (laughs) and uh there was just so many it's really a product of its time, and you can see you can see a lot of the decisions that they're making um, and connecting like uh, with some of the trends that you're seeing. But there's there's a lot of stuff in here that's really like just I love it. It's really great. There's a lot of stuff in here that's just 
really strange decisions that that you know I don't really understand still, but uh, it was it was a fun one to watch. Yeah, I. So I, because I didn't know anything, I spent at least the first half hour of the movie just like completely unmoored, having no idea what I was really watching or where I was. Um, And so I think my reaction was, if I had to distill it down, it was that I got a lot of stuff that I appreciated as a musical theater fan, but the whole movie felt basically like unstoryboarded. Like they just didn't really know what structure they wanted, what the structure of the movie they wanted to have was. Um, And based on the history of the movie, which it looks like it was a project that had originally started under Walt Disney. And I think it was supposed to be like a two part series for a theme park or something. And then it got shelved for almost a decade and they brought it back and decided that it was going to, um, showcase some some dragon animation when the dragon had previously been all invisible and once i after i had watched the movie and i learned that i was like okay yeah i guess that makes sense (laughs) they yeah yeah they did not give it the treatment that toy story got where they storyboarded it to death (laughs) yeah this one it it seems like people were just trying to make something work and mm-hmm. it was just a lot of pieces that they're trying to get together. And, you know, it is, uh, it's a film that, uh, that feels like it's, own, it feels like it's a rough draft in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I agree with that. And then they released it. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, all right, let's talk a little bit about some of the the people who who put this this bad boy together. The first people I want to talk about are Joel Hirshhorn and Al Kasha, and these are the composer lyricist team who wrote all the songs for the movie. And they also uh, Joel Hirshhorn had written some music for Elvis Presley, Elvis Presley and Roy Orbison, but then their it looks like their biggest hit was, or the their most well-known movie was they did for The Poseidon Adventure, which is something that I was not particularly familiar with. And then he also did The Towering Inferno, which I don't think had any songs. I believe I have seen this movie, and I so I assume he just did the score for that. And then they also did additional music for the Broadway production of Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and (laughs) they wrote the music and lyrics for Copperfield, which I'm sure everybody remembers. It ran all of 13 performances on the Broadways, or 13 days, actually. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe it ran 14 performances. I'm sure that really, really paid the rent at that time, that that one extra performance. Um, um, so based yeah, on the I, you know smash hit David Copperfield, uh, definitely mo- uh, Charles Dickens' most well known work. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't think we need to spend too much time on them because their credits are not 
super immense, but the music's a big part of this movie, and I think there's a good case to be made that it's the best part of this movie. I think a lot of the songs are really good, and it also shows a lot of range, I think. There's, um, well, we can talk about it as we get into the scenes, so... For sure, yeah, and I agree with this. It's a, um, it's the music that really stood out to me in my memory. Um, particularly, there's uh, the song "Candle in the Water," which we we'll, we will get to. Um, but uh, there's a lot of the songs that really stood out to me, and it feels like, um, you know, this this film kind of is barely making it from song to song by the you know by the skin of their teeth, um, mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah, yeah. the The plot is is convoluted, and uh, doesn't entirely make sense. But the the songs kind of keep everything running and keep it together. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk. Uh, you wanted to talk a little bit about Don Bluth. Yes, Don Bluth. So Don Bluth does the. Um, He's the director of the animation on this film. So they originally, as you said, this film was intended to be entirely live action with a dragon that was invisible for the entire film. Um, And then, (laughs) right, yeah, so uh, hard to imagine that. And then they added a little bit of animation at the end, and the um, the test audiences liked it so much that they decided to extend it to twenty two minutes of the film of animated dragon. and so they brought Don Bluth in to direct the animation, and he was really heavily involved with this to the point um, that the director of the film, um, he offered to Don Bluth, this is Don Chaffee, the director of the film, offered to Don Bluth to share a directing credit. Um, and uh, so that was the plan, but that was rejected by Disney, um, and they told him absolutely not. And oh wow! Yeah, because of that, Don Bluth ends up leaving the company, and so this is Whoops. the the last thing that that Don Bluth does for Disney for a long time. Um, but Don Bluth then goes on to make one of the um, the most important studios that isn't Disney that does animation and makes films like The Secret of Nim. Or oh, I'm trying to remember all the ones that John, that Don Bluth ends up doing. Anastasia is one of these. The Swan Princess mm-hmm. is one of these. Um, uh, American Tale. All of these. Uh, um, all dogs go to heaven. A lot of classic animation that uh, and it's really the big thing in animation during this fallow period that Disney goes through immediately afterwards. And uh, Don Bluth makes this um, this company that's incredibly successful. And uh, has a long-lasting legacy uh, to the point where Disney eventually goes back and buys uh, buys the studio and buys the rights to all of those films. So you can still see all of Don Bluth's films on Disney Plus, um, even though you know he had left the company in order to make them. It's sort of like uh, all answers to the trivia question of like, wait, Disney didn't make that, or yeah, yeah, questions it's in a... the category Disney didn't make that so many so many movies it's a especially i think uh the one that a lot of our listeners will probably think of is anastasia mm-hmm. um it's a you know it's one of his best films that he puts together with a lot of really good music um and 
people always mistake that as a Disney movie, and people will be like, oh yeah, Anastasia, that Disney princess. And nope, she's... Nope, no, definitely she's not. not. And, and they, I mean, the thing they did for Anastasia that makes it feel so much different from the rest is they just went out and poached a Broadway composing team. <laughs> they got Flaherty and Aaron, so... Uh, so yeah it's don bluth fascinating figure um in disney's history and one of those uh one of those just uh people that's a pivotal moment and i think a lot of the reason why disney goes through this fallow period is the mismanagement of their relationship with don bluth Mm. now a lot everywhere that i looked said that he was uncredited as director but I was pretty sure that I saw his name in the opening credits. I should have gone back yeah. and checked. I don't know if it listed him as a director, though. It might have just listed him under animation. Maybe that's Got it. Got it. That might but have I do remember was, seeing yeah. his name. Um, because I had forgotten that he'd worked on this until I saw his name. And I was like, oh, Don Bluth was on that? I better go look that up for uh, for the the podcast. Because, you know, he's a central character in the in the tale of Disney. Maybe he was animation director, but didn't get the director credit. Yeah, that's and and that's what the that's what the 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 kerfuffle. fight was over. Yeah, yeah, the kerfuffle. Yeah, exactly. All right, uh, and then the other thing this movie has is just an absolutely knockout cast. So let's run down a little bit some of the the leading players here. Sure. Um, I think let's start with Helen Reddy. So Helen Reddy plays Nora and she was at about the apex of her career here. And Mm -hmm. she, she had become famous in the 71 or 72. She had released a couple pop albums and (laughs) she wrote the song. I am woman. Yes. She was, not uh she was not a songwriter but she said this is a quote that she has that i found that i really liked she said i couldn't find any songs that said what i thought being a woman was about i thought about all these strong women in my family who had gotten through the depression and world wars and drunken abusive husbands but there was nothing in music that reflected that and then she lists a few songs uh i certainly never thought of myself as a songwriter but it came down to having to do it (laughs) That's great. That's that's a great quote. I think it's great, and she is so unbelievable in this movie. Like she She's just great. grounds the entire thing. In fact, I I would. It feels like this movie is. I don't know if it's intentional or not, but it feels like it is a Helen Reddy vehicle. Like it it is uh, designed for her. The songs really seem designed for for just her range in both like uh the kinds of songs that she's singing and um all of those kinds of things and she she does a good acting performance here despite this being one of her only film credits oh i think i we'll talk about it when we get into the scenes that we're talking about but yeah i think her acting performance is just spot on uh, yeah it's a she's she's my favorite part of the film for sure um yeah 
And then the other thing about her that's really fascinating is uh, with that song, I Am Woman, she really became like the face of the second wave women, um, um, feminist mo- movement. Um, and so the ERA and all of those things, she was a very um, vocal proponent of the ERA. Um, and, you know, when they were doing rallies and things like that, that, that song, I Am Woman, Hear Me Roar, is the one that would play through all of this stuff. And then she became like the target of a lot of the ire and hatred of the conservative movement, especially like Phyllis Schlafly, when she went to the Grammys to receive the, uh, the award for I Am Woman. And she got up to give her speech and she only had 15 seconds. And she gets up, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read it to you because, and you'll get why this was, you know, okay. why they hated her after this. Uh, she says, "I would like to thank Jeff Wald. Jeff Wald is uh, her husband and also her producer. I would like to thank Jeff, Jeff Wald because he makes my success possible, and I would like to thank God because she makes everything possible." <laughs> and that's her speech, and then she's done, and it was like all over the news, and all the conservative people, you know just were like burning pictures of her and all kinds of stuff. And she just became really hated by, by that movement after she says that. And it's, I mean, pretty innocuous statement uh, that she makes, but you know, um, you can see, I think a lot of the, the, um, a lot of these influences as part of this film. Yeah. What's the, she has the Walt song, which is not on our list to talk about, but, um, the one about belonging. Oh, I can't in, remember. In the movie. Yes. The, uh, I can't remember the one. It's the, oh, I should know the name of this one. Let me look it up real quick. There's room for everyone. Yeah, there's room for everyone. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. There's room for everyone. Yeah, and it just, it does feel a little out of place in the movie, but it I assume it's something they wrote for her and she was passionate about doing and saying. Yeah, it, it seems like it. And um, just a, a fascinating person, a fascinating character. Um, and she's, like, like I said, she, I think she knocks it out of the park in this film and she does a really fantastic job. Yeah, I was listening to her first couple albums today while I was working, and I forgot that I was doing research for the podcast. I was just enjoying listening to her albums so much, so I'll put them in. Um, I mean, you have to like like sort of the crossover between uh, musical theater and uh, folk to sort of like yeah. her stuff, but I think if you like Barbara Streisand's albums or if you like... Like if you want like a cross between Streisand and Joni Mitchell or something like that, you'll you'll really like her stuff. Yeah, she's good. All right, what other? So the rest of the cast. Yeah. <laughs> um. Oh, there's so many on here. So we have Jim Dale. Uh, Jim Dale and you... the, I mean Jim Dale did so many things. He trained as a dancer and then he became a pop star and then he became a movie star and then he became a tv star um so he just really did everything but he had this musical and musical theater background that i think really shines through in this movie but the thing that i thought was so funny was i know that he's only 
three years away from doing Barnum on Broadway, where, of course, he plays P.T. Barnum. And it's just the exact same role. Like, the only difference yeah. is in Barnum, he's the protagonist, and in this movie, he's... Uh, the antagonist. Probably the antagonist, yeah. And yeah. But if you if you go listen to the Barnum score, <laughs> it's like the exact same song as his opening song here, Chapa, Chappaquaddy, or uh, however he mispronounces. Ch- Fassimacquacky. Fassimacquacky, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah the, whatever he says. Yeah, it... It, it's very funny. I like. I wonder if they knew, or if he knew, or if uh, Cy Coleman was like, "Hey, you did such a good job with this. I'll just write you some songs that are very similar." <laughs> Possibly, yeah. Who knows? Um, and then continuing on the list, it, we'll we'll try to be a little bit quicker with uh, with yeah, the rest because there's so many. But you have Mickey Rooney, who's um, this is his fiftieth year of acting in this film (laughs) and he goes on to have another 40 years in film after this movie um he starts in 1927 and ends in 2017 is his last credit um and he has 300 different film credits um it's you know one of the things that i think uh, elephant in the room with mickey rooney is acknowledging that he had that um really just um kind of offensive uh uh performance he did in breakfast at tiffany's in Yellowface. um but uh, additionally you know he just has so many credits for such a long time in so many different eras of mo- uh, in of films and i think the performance from him is a lot of fun in this one too yeah um, we also have Red Buttons, who was a comedic and drama performer, uh, known mostly as a comedian uh, at the time period, but also did some uh, some some dramatic performances. You have Shelley Winters, a, another very well-known comedian from the time period. Um, you have Jim Backus, who was he plays the mayor in this one, and he is the millionaire on Gilligan's Island, which is one of the biggest shows on television at the time period, and it's just. It feels like they just tried to get as many big name actors as they could and jump, you know, just jumble them right into that film. Yeah, it's like, well, we don't really know what story we want to tell, but we know that we'll have the talent in our cast to support whatever story we want to tell. <laughs> yep, definitely. So, uh, it's a, it is definitely one of those. It, it has vibes of something like. Um, I don't know, like Love Actually or something like that, where you just have a huge all-star cast and, you know, you just hope that it turns into something. (laughs) Yeah. All right, so let's talk about our first scene here, which was one that you had picked out, and it's the bar scene that happens, I don't know, probably like 15 or 20 minutes into the movie. Yeah, so this one did not... I did not remember this one very well. Um, And then when I saw it, uh, and just jogged the memories of watching it as a kid, I realized that I didn't really understand what was going on with this very well. Um, So Helen Reddy comes into the bar to go find her dad, who's Mickey Rooney, who spends basically all of his time at the bar and has a severe issue of alcoholism in this this (laughs) film. Um, Severe is not even just scratching the surface. He's, uh, I mean, I think his character is essentially drunk for the entire movie. Um, I, but until the end when he sobers up, I think, yeah. Until the end when he gets sobered up by, yeah, by seeing the dragon and whatnot. Um, 
but she comes down to get to get her father and what really just kind of uh i found fascinating um it was a little bit unsettling for me as i watched it but uh, in the context was all of these men that are in this bar start like harassing her and at moments kind of like groping her as she's like trying to move through this bar and then pretty uncomfy she, yeah yeah it's pretty uncomfortable and then she just kind of um girl bosses her way out of it i guess you could say she you know like kicks people out of the way pushes her way out of the way makes it on top of the the bar and then ends up on top of a keg where she's dancing um and suddenly it's like all of the people in the bar kind of change the way that they're approaching her and start treating her with this respect like she's earned her way um into their good graces i don't know if it seemed like that to you I didn't track that story of it. I was um, I was too busy wondering why we got this like tip in your musical structure, typically your production number comes like at the top of Act two um, or you can do it at the end of Act one or somewhere in there. but it was so strange to have a production number right here. And especially to have it with a character we hadn't met yet. Yeah, and like this is her introduction. And, and her introduction is her getting groped and then, as you say, taking over the the bar. Yeah, so it, it makes me think about... You know just what's uh, what's happening with like second wave feminism at this at the mm -hmm. time period and this idea of um you know a lot of that movement was centered around um domestic abuse and sexual harassment and uh women uh, finding like their way into the workplace and there's a lot of criticism of that because um it's mostly like uh dealing with um or approaching issues from a very white perspective because uh, people, women that weren't white, were working beforehand, and they, you know, they were still involved in a lot of these things, and so um, it was not cognizant of all of those issues. But um, it's, I do find it fascinating from that perspective. It seems to me that they're trying to take Helen Reddy, who they knew was like so popular from this song, and say, okay, now we're gonna show Helen Reddy, and she's gonna do exactly what she's famous for doing as she walks into the walks into this bar and that stood out to me this time after i'd been doing some reading about her and things that makes sense i like that reading of this number i so there's two uh there there's there were two moments that i bumped on of like this pretty heavy-handed sexual harassment one was in this scene and then the other ones at the end of the movie when the mm -hmm. um the sons of the, the gogans yeah the gogans are talking about wanting to hold her tight or i think it, i think that's what it is that one felt like it had it was still gross and it was still like i don't think we really needed this especially when there was a joke the sons were doing it and then their dad did it and then the wife was like you better not want to hold her like our sons want to hold her yeah and it's like mm, so it's okay for your sons but not your husband okay got it got it got it got it uh perfect 
But at least that one had like felt like it had a point of view because they were the bad guys. Right. Whereas this one, uh, it's just the people in the town, just like all the drunks at the bar. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And (laughs) so, yeah, I like your reading on it that at least gives it a little more point of view. Could have had it be probably a little more explicit, but it was the 70s. The other thing about this scene, and really this movie, is there's a lot of alcohol. <laughs> there's so much alcohol in this movie. Just, it, it, it's so much. It's, I mean, in this one, it's literally raining down from, like, the ceiling in just all over them in alcohol. And they're just, like, bathing in alcohol. Yeah, it's like, did we take this number out of Seven Brides for Seven Brothers? <laughs> that's that's really what it felt like to me. It does. It definitely does feel like that. I agree. Um, all that being said, I, I, like, I was so curious if they had them on a harness or anything for when they were doing the barrel walking. She's in heels. She's in heels. That was, I mean, maybe they had harnesses and and it was less impressive than it looked, but I don't think so. I think they were doing that. She looked, if not, they fooled me. There were moments where she looked like a bit panicked that she was about to fall off of this thing um, in, you know, in a way that I wouldn't expect from Harmonist. I have no idea, but yeah, it feels really real. And when you see uh, they cut with this shot up to the edge of the barrel and show like her heels on the mm-hmm. barrel. And um, I, I shouted at that moment. I, um, I was watching it and Lori was like uh, off to the side and I just shouted, she's in heels. How is she doing this? Um, yeah, that's a, that is a wild scene. That was really, really cool. Uh, do you have anything else you want to say about this scene before we move on? I don't. I, I, I guess just to sum up one thing, I do. It is a bit uncomfortable, this scene. And I think uh, watching it now, and as an adult, it is just... That scene is real rough. Um, and the, the way that they treat her and just kind of like manhandle her literally is is really kind of gross and skeevy um and i did not remember that from watching it as a kid oh i also wanted to ask you at the very top of this scene i'm pretty sure the because i watched it twice i watched it when i watched the movie and then before recording today i'm pretty sure for the first like 15 to 20 seconds of the song the audio is just horribly out of sync I, Mickey I didn't Rooney. notice. Yeah, the, Mickey you're probably Rooney right, is, but I didn't notice. He is not lip syncing to the music, and he's doing some hits on choreography that is not lined up. And then this makes sense. I eventually I, it lines up again, but I didn't notice. So you know that's that's something I'd have to go back and check. But yeah, that I mean it doesn't sound wrong. There's moments in this film that feel like that, um, like you know. Something was just a little bit off on this. Oh, there are definitely places where it's like they were running out of editing time. <laughs> like yeah. at the at the end of the movie when the when Elliot throws the Gungans oh, yeah. up in the air and then they fall in the water, they literally just cut their audio. They don't do any effect for like them falling into the water. They just cut it. It's just a hard cut. 
yeah it's it's interesting it's <laughs> it's, it's it's an interesting one way to go guys you did it um okay so let's talk about the next scene that i wanted to talk about which is it's not, uh the scene leading into it's not easy so this scene is right after nora has found pete down at the cave and she tells him to come up and get some chowder and the i had said before that i didn't it took me about half an hour to click into the movie i wrote i paused the movie and looked at the time during this scene and it was 34 minutes because this was i did not feel like the movie started for me at least on my first watch until this scene and i thought it was because uh helen reddy just did such a good job working with this kid who um I'm very sorry to say, was not the most grounded of child actors I have ever seen. We'll, uh, this is true, yeah. We'll, true. we'll put it that way. Um, and he was very cute, but uh, I would not say very believable. And I think you could sort of see it with most of his scene partners, but she just was in this world, and she was... I I think she used some amount of, like, her character was trying to settle down an excited or nervous kid. And so I think she used some of that. And this scene between them is just really great where she's getting info on him. Um, she asks him about the bruises that he has and uh, <laughs> whether the places he came from hit him and how often they hit him. Um, I was pretty pleased by the majority of stances this movie took on um, corporal punishment and domestic abuse on the kids. It was pretty clear that it was not okay. And uh, this is something that has not really had that clear a point of view in this country historically. I think it's starting to change now, but uh, a lot of people still beat their kids. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> far, far too many. Um, and and this movie makes a pretty clear case of you know uh, opposing that kind of behavior and opposing like you said domestic abuse and uh, and abuse of children and um, you know the Gogans are such clear antagonists in this in in the way that they treat Pete um, and she's very empathetic and like connects with him and. Um, understands like where he's coming from and that part yeah she's very believable in the scene yeah she does a great job and then it goes into the, the song it's not easy which just was like a breath of fresh air to me when it started it was like oh this is the music of the time I mean it was probably like four or five years late at that point but it just felt like a pop song that could have been on one of her first couple albums and she sings it great and the kid sings it fine but they sound great together and yeah. the i had it, it was so nice to hear music that had not been auto-tuned <laughs> hadn't been right. pitch corrected at all and 
but her pitch was is so good in it that I started to question myself. I was like, wait, did they have pitch correction back in the seventies? But then of course he's like a little flat. And so I was like, no, I guess they didn't. She's she's just that good. She is just that good. But I found another video. I'll put a link of it in the show notes of this guitarist analyzing her vocal performance off of her first album of, I don't know how to love him. And he also remarked on how good her pitch is, especially for someone who does not use very much vibrato. And once he said it, then when I was listening, I was, I realized like, oh yeah, it is just uncannily good. That's amazing, yeah. Um, I wish it had been my observation, but it was this Australian guitarist instead. So uh, Makes sense, makes sense. The other thing that's fascinating about this one and I was going to talk about the, this a little bit later, is their use of the lighthouse. Um, and this mm-hmm. is one of the first scenes that's really, like, in the lighthouse. And the the feeling of that space is just incredible, the way that they... Um, every, every scene in the lighthouse I just love, and it it's filmed so well and it feels so authentic. And a big part of this is that they built a lighthouse for this film. Um, just a full, completely 100% functioning lighthouse uh, they put together for this movie. Um, and then the idea was that they were going to then, like, transport it to Disneyland, and they didn't. And so, you know, oh, it's oops. just... Yeah, they just let it fall derelict on the coast of California. Um, but you f- you feel the authenticity of of this lighthouse as they're there, and it's a very kind of intimate place as they're doing this scene and i'm just thinking of like as they're folding the the blankets and like the pillows and all that stuff getting them ready for bed as they're singing this song and it's small and it's close and i think that that affects this as well it probably has great acoustics too uh probably although they they, didn't use it in the film but yeah they didn't use it for for this recording um the, she actually says in this scene, like, the lighthouse becomes a character because he asks about mm-hmm. if she has a husband or if she's married, and she says, yeah, I'm married to this lighthouse. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's fascinating. And it's, yeah. it, it's the, in many ways for me, it's the heart of the movie is the lighthouse itself. Yeah, there were, um, I think I wrote down two places where I just loved the camera work. And both of them were exterior shots of the lighthouse. Yeah, for and sure. I didn't know at the time that they had built it, but now now that I do, <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. It looks great there. It does. It really does. And it's uh, the interior shots as well. I, I just, just the way that they did this camera work, and it's it's obviously like a small and cramped space, but they get just such beautiful angles and beautiful shots from inside of this thing. And they show a lot of like the work of running a lighthouse throughout this film as well. Um, which I think is, is a lot of fun. Yeah. This, um, this scene also does a little bit of deception that I think, I think in retrospect was kind of an accident or probably is just because they didn't really think it through very much but it actually worked for me on my watch through the movie of like 
how how known dragons are oh, in yeah. this world because you sort of the until Helen until Nora admit like at this point she sort of just accepts when Pete tells her like oh yeah my dragon's down there and it's not until later when she tells Mickey Rooney I think it's Mickey Rooney that of course there's no dragon that you realize she's just playing along with with Pete and so it sort of made this roller coaster of do people know there are dragons in this world do they not know there are dragons in this world yeah, and um, I didn't pick up on this because I'd seen it before, so I know how it ends. So I didn't have even think about think about that. I've always just uh, thought of it as you know she's just playing around, or she's playing along with him as as you know it's his imaginary friend. Sure, whatever you can believe what you want, kid. Whatever helped you get through you know the horrible abuse that you were facing. Yeah. So. All right. So let's talk about our next scene oh yeah yeah (laughs) let's talk a little bit about jim dale and uh red buttons red buttons yes jim dale and red buttons yeah so this is for every little piece and this is the song after so they start where uh jim dale is tending to a dental patient and has some sort of dental contraption in his patient's mouth and red buttons comes in and says you have to come with me and jim dale says oh no i couldn't possibly that would be wildly unprofessional and then he says oh but it's the dragon okay well you can stay here and he has the guy put his foot on his own pedal that's holding you know his mouth open with this contraption and says if you take your foot off of this it's gonna go clean through your face and (laughs) just (laughs) there um yeah yeah so and then they go down and their jim dale finds a book and pulls a book out and they're researching how they can get rich quick off of off of some dragon dragon bits and then they sing a whole song about all of the ways they can make money and it's the song is titled every little piece but i think most people are probably going to remember this song as the one that goes money 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 by the pound Um, considering that's about half the lyrics of the song, so. Uh, yeah, and the reason I wanted to talk about this, so I had a pretty interesting experience watching this movie where Jim Dale, basically all of his time on screen completely worked for me. I mean, he is chewing the scenery like... He is a mastication expert, um, <laughs> but but it is so committed to that I it all it all worked. And red buttons basically, I felt like they were in two different worlds. None of his stuff really worked for me, and it took me until I went back and rewatched to sort of figure out why. And I think if it's something you're interested in you go back and watch jim dale has a sharpness to all of his movements everything like he never spends any time in between a movement everything is choreographed everything is committed to um 
and as soon as it happens, he's there. And Red Buttons is a lot more wishy-washy. There's a lot yeah. more I was going to say slurred. Um, yeah, just a like... lot more slurred. Yeah. And I'm sure, like, I'm sure some of it is his shtick. I'm sure some of it is the that he's supposed to be drunk. But it just felt like these two they're supposed to have this buddy comedy duo going on and it just felt like they weren't <laughs> they were like half a plane off of each other yeah like they didn't show up to the same to the same show yeah um, exactly and this is it, it really is um the if you see other things that red buttons is in this matches up with his performances mm-hmm. uh it feels like this is uh a very typical red buttons performance um, outside of his dramatic roles, which are a bit different, uh, but with his comedic roles, it feels like he's just kind of reproducing the same, uh, the same vibes and the same, um, you know, the same choices and strategies uh, while he's approaching this character. Yeah. And in this number, you can see it really clearly. There are a couple moments where they're looking back and forth at different pages on the book. And if you, if you like, pause and go back you can watch jim dales be very sharp and then see uh red buttons be a little more wishy-washy and it's the same thing once they get out of uh whatever their contraption that they ride on is and they're doing their choreography on the the bow of their ship um jim dales are sharp like they look like he has dance training and red buttons looks like He's trying to get through the number, you know? <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. Um, yeah, I, I do love, though, like, um, those moments when they're in the book and they're looking through and they're just, like, going through all the parts and then they'll get to a new thing. <gasps> and they just do this gasp that's so yeah. sharp and so crisp. And I, I just love those moments. Um, this music number just really stood out to me. I remembered from when I was a kid uh, for the, all of those I, things. Yeah, and I don't mean to say, like, everything red buttons does is bad there are a couple moments he absolutely nails in this song any like at the end of every verse where jim dale's holding out the note and then uh red buttons comes in and supports him with that typical uh uh sidekick pizzazz uh it's perfect it works really 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 well and then (laughs) i would be remiss if i did not mention at the end of this number they are dancing off and red buttons is doing this wild flailing dance (laughs) as he's singing about money and it was so funny it is so good i had to pause this it's so weird (laughs) this dance is just (laughs) you have no idea what he's doing and each movement that he does is a complete shock and not exact like you'd never have guessed that's what he's gonna do next I, uh, it has to be unchoreographed like and man they're just so lucky no one tripped during this take it is so good i i paused the movie and i had to record myself watching it to send it to my sister who also has never seen this movie um and all i don't think we'll get in trouble if i put it put that little 25 second video in the show notes uh so people who don't remember exactly what it is you can just go look at it um 
it is so it is so good and so wacky i'm like why couldn't you have brought this this energy to to everything um i do want to say before we move on jim dale also brings the same sharpness and contrast to um a lot of his dialogue scenes as well there were a couple that really stood out to me that i was just like that's musical comedy acting like you can rehearse for (laughs) like a full day just to get that snap crackle pop of that scene um and one of them is they do this amazing bit in the bar he does it with mickey rooney where um he pours mickey rooney a drink and mickey rooney goes to drink it and then he just takes it out of his hand and it is just so perfectly choreographed it is really good yeah and it's it's really easy to miss because they're so good at it but it's just like that takes a lot of work and that takes rehearsal and that's choreography and then the other is his delivery it's at the top of this scene or no i think it's at a in a previous scene where he says to red buttons i don't like you when you're drunk oh no i've just realized i don't like you when you're sober yeah. go have a drink or something like that yeah it's great it's great and this <laughs> is right after he drink. got back from seeing the dragon with mm-hmm. lampy mickey rooney's character and i gotta say the the scene with mickey rooney and uh red buttons in the cave um you can tell that they have very similar uh, approaches to acting and apparently um that whole scene was all scripted out ahead of time and then uh mickey rooney and red buttons throughout the script and improvised everything that happens in the cave um, oh really yeah and so that whole scene is just basically completely improvised um and i just remember loving that scene especially uh red buttons when he just like loses it when uh when um elliot puts his hand on his shoulder and is like creeping along and scared and um yeah it's a great scene oh that's one of my favorite bits is they're scared of the thing and then the thing comes along and doesn't know what they're talking about, so he's really scared about the thing. Yeah. I love that. So, it's good it's stuff. Really it's good stuff. All right. What's your last scene? <laughs> the last scene, um, I don't have quite as much to say about this, but this is the scene, the Brazzle Dazzle Day, um, which is, it feels like one of the really bigger numbers here um, between uh, Nora and, um, and Pete and Lampy. Um, Helen Reddy and Mickey Rooney and Sean Marshall all performing and they're painting the lighthouse and then they go through and sing the song Dancing Through the Lighthouse and it's about you know the song is kind of interesting and I I got a lot of um, oh what's that one from Mary Poppins when they're doing the work Um, uh, I got those kind of vibes like this is a whistle while you work kind of song or something like that the one one on the the chimney sweep song you mean no the one where they're cleaning up in the house the um um i'm drawing a blank i haven't seen uh mary poppins in too long but they're singing about how you know if you're working then you'll be happy and all that stuff the song isn't actually the important part to me uh in this in pete's dragon it's just all the the cinematography that they put into shooting that lighthouse and uh, i think watching this one just to see this song just to see everything that they do with the lighthouse is really incredible they have um incredible shots that come around um i assume they're shot with a helicopter as they come out uh and around was what i was thinking too yeah 
And then there's a lot of shots because they start at the bottom of the White House or the lighthouse and then they go up the side of the lighthouse and then they go inside and they go up through the middle and into where the light is at. And the camera is just going along with them and showing every bit of this lighthouse as it's going. And the fact that it's like it's not just a set that they're that they're piecing together different parts, but they're bringing the camera through all of these things and you really get a feel for the reality of this lighthouse. It's, uh, it's an incredible scene to watch. And, um, I, I really enjoy just the, the, um, the, not so much the lyrics of the song, but just the energy of the song as they're going along with it. Hey man, you build a fork and lighthouse. And you're going to film that fork in Lighthouse. Like, you're you're going to do a whole scene, a whole dance number through the entire Lighthouse. You're covering the whole thing. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure that, I mean, what do I know? I'm not a cinematographer, but I my sense was also that some amount of those shots were done with a helicopter. Um, there were some that were steady that I assume were mounted somewhere or felt like they were mounted somewhere. But certainly the panning ones felt... Um, there there was one from very far away that just I don't know how it could yeah. be a helicopter. There's this the I think the shot I think you're probably thinking of is at the end of the film where they stay on the lighthouse and then they just zoom all there, the way There out. was that one, yeah. There was another one in this song though that was yeah, not that's... quite as far, but um, <laughs> it actually felt like they decided they were going to get that shot regardless of what the choreography was because it didn't <laughs> feel like they had uh, designed the choreography with a distance shot in mind. But Yeah, there, well, there's a lot of choreography in this. The choreography is they're going up the lighthouse. I think it's really good when they're like pulling the, the mm-hmm. scaffold up. Um, the choreography when they get up to the top is... A little strange uh, and has some really interesting choices like when they're cleaning the windows with their butts and just kind of rubbing up against and you're like okay and you know they got the camera right there and here's the butt shot right on the right on the mirror and right on the window and you know it's this film is what it is i i liked the butt cleaning um i thought that was cute the weirder part to me was where they blew on the glass yeah, and that's then they weird wiped too. the other side of the glass. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, that's. What are we? I thought the same thing. I thought, well, how does have... the... <laughs> uh, am I not understanding the science of this? Because I mean, that's possible. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. Well, then I was like, maybe that's how they use. Like, maybe that's how they alerted people to where the spots were. But then I didn't Google it. I assume it's not. I assume they just wanted cute court yeah who knows who knows hey maybe maybe a professional lighthouse uh glass cleaner will let us know that sounds good i hope so the, the real purpose so before 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 our audience comes and like mur- murders us for not remember the song from mary poppins it's a spoonful of sugar um uh, which obviously we should have remembered but you know sometimes that happens just just a spoonful of sugar uh yeah i would say uh, Brazzle Dazzle Day is not uh, <laughs> as iconic. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. not the greatest so... song title ever. No, it's ever not created. Uh, also, but the scaffolding. The energy's great. The scaffolding is really supposed to be there for painting, right? Because there are other ways up the lighthouse that are a lot safer, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> so, 
Like um, you've seen them climb the lighthouse. Yeah, I assume so. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. Um, this is this is also the scene though that supposedly fulfills like the emotional core of the story, where uh, Pete. I keep wanting to call him Elliot. Where Pete finds out that he's going to get adopted and have a home with Nora and Lampy. Yeah, and then when they're together at the end of the film, um, there's a reprise. Of, well, I don't know. I don't think they sing it, but it, there's a reprise in the score um, of this song. So it's obvious that, mm. you know, this is representing that emotion uh, that that Pete's coming to live with Nora and Lampy. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to say about this scene? That's it. You know, it's 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 a fun one. Um, the only other thing I have in my notes that I wanted to touch on is (laughs) Pete is so mean to Elliot. Yeah, he's really mean. So I'm like, why does this dragon love you? They sing a whole song about how they, I mean, we don't know what the dragon's saying. Maybe he's saying you pompous twit i saved you but (laughs) we're certainly led to believe that they're saying they love each other yeah and And, he's uh, after he gets in like trouble from the school and he comes back and he's just he's really mean for it for elliot he's a good dragon yeah it's it's a strange decision (laughs) to do that i my guess is they were working with uh limited limited acting capability but like they were just trying to get through some of those shots yeah and i i think it additionally you know sean marshall uh, bless his heart as he's trying to perform this uh i don't know how much um like how clear the direction was about the the subtleties of the emotions he's trying to get. Uh, you know, a lot of the directing this film feels like a lot of the characters are in kind of a different world. So, mm-hmm. uh, and he's acting. You know, Sean Marshall is this kid with uh, his first acting experience, and he's acting to an invisible dragon and you know there's nothing there yeah yeah so you know there's probably like someone that's wearing like like a green suit or something some kind of green screen effect or uh or whatever they might be some kind of tracking effect i should say um but yeah there's uh, i think that that's probably what makes him come across so mean is they're just like okay act like you're really upset with him and he tries to to hit that, and it's a difficult it's a different it's difficult to hit the nuances of the emotion that he's probably going for. Yeah, they still didn't have to write the line uh, where he says to him, "I don't know whether you're good for me or bad." <laughs> doesn't have to say that. No, definitely not. <laughs> that, is, that is so brutal. It is to a say to your friend, and also the dragon who saved you from. Daily from the Gogans, yeah, I know, the Ugh. Gogans, the Gogans. Um, oh, and I also wanted to ask you. So <laughs> they made this really uh, interesting decision for Candle on the Water, where there's just no 
choreo. <laughs> they just do nothing. Um, she just stands yeah. at the top of the lighthouse and the lighthouse is sometimes blinding and sometimes not. Uh, do we think they did that because the lighthouse worked and they wanted to show off the lighthouse working? Like they filmed it on the lighthouse and they were proud of it? Yeah, I think I think that's what it was. They're just like, <laughs> listen, we built the lighthouse and the light works. So we're doing a musical number that's about a candle on the water, and that thing is going to be a candle. And you know what? That's what we're doing. That's the song. Yep. And, I mean, I think they probably knew. They they did release this song as, like, a pop single. Uh, I think a different version from the one that's in the movie. So I'm sure they knew. They thought this song was going to be popular, and they also knew uh, Helen Reddy could could handle it. And it won an Oscar for um, uh, for best original song uh, the year that it came out. So, it, yeah, I think they knew they had a hit with at least at least the song. Yeah, uh, that's that's everything that I have in my notes. Do you have anything else that you want to say before we move towards closing? That's it for me. All right. So this is this was an interesting one. So we definitely yeah. want to hear from you. Uh, let us know how you liked the episode. Let us know how you liked the movie, especially if it's something you, like Matt, have a lot of nostalgia for or a lot of uh, previous experience with. Or if you're like me, where you watched it for the first time, we'd be very curious to hear about that. If you want to find me on Twitter, I am at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A. And you can find Matt at... O-R-A-Y-M-W. O-R-A-Y-M-W. And if you want to send us something more than 280 characters, it's 280 now, right? Or is it 140? If you want to send us something longer than a tweet, you can send us an email at podcaststreamit at gmail.com. And eventually, if we get enough feedback, we'll do sort of a mailbag episode. So feel free to email and tell Matt that the song that he couldn't remember was Spoonful of Sugar. And uh, next week, we're going to finish up season one. It's kind of crazy, kind of bananas that we are here at the end of our first season already. But we're going (laughs) to start the Disney renaissance. We're going to crawl out of this hole that we were mired in in 1977 with uh, Little Mermaid from 1989. I am very excited about this one. Um, it's a. I love the Little Mermaid, um, mm-hmm. and it has a very dear spot in my heart um, with you know Howard Ashman and all that stuff. So I'm very excited to do this one. Yeah, I think it'll be. I think it'll be really, really great. So, we will look forward to that. And uh, do you have a closing question? I do. So my question is, if you had an invisible dragon I do. that you could yeah. just that you could just you know hang out with and do stuff with um mm-hmm. what would you do with your invisible dragon what would you spend your time doing uh can i just fly that sounds wonderful yeah that sounds awesome i would probably just fly that sounds terrifying to me um, okay you wouldn't do that what, i mean okay, well wait, maybe I'm, we'd go fly. it's invisible you're just like hanging on to this dragon and you're flying and you can't see you're just like in the air i don't know i just i have vertigo it would make me vomit i am sure 
Uh, okay, more specific than that, I would we would fly, and we just park above uh, baseball stadiums and watch the game. <laughs> oh, that I sounds amazing! That'd be awesome. Oh, yeah. that'd be great. And okay, yeah, that's great. Maybe we'd uh, fly down and intercept some really high fly balls that uh, our beloved Seattle Mariners had hit, and then they turn into home runs or ground rule doubles. It's a good idea. I love it. Yeah. I love it. What um, about you? You know, one of my favorite mo- moments from this film, just a, a moment, is uh, when Elliot's walking through the town and he steps in the cement and it leaves those big footprints. And mm-hmm. you know what? I'd go step in a bunch of cement. And it's, uh, it's a horribly, you know, um, a horrible antisocial kind of thing to do. But I just think it's so satisfying when the footprints just appear in the cement uh, with the invisible dragon. So that's what I would do. Go ruin a bunch of people's cement with an invisible dragon. That's very cool. Uh, okay, so in this movie, Nora spends the majority of the movie not believing the dragon is real until the dragon appears in front of her. But let's say that Laurie had a dragon, and that dragon is extremely shy and is not going to become visible in front of you. What could Laurie tell you or have that dragon do that would make you believe there's a real dragon? Ooh, this is a good one. What could the dragon do that could make me... Or what could Laurie tell you? Tell me. Yeah. You know, what I'm thinking, the the moment that I love uh, from this film, where you just get a sense of the dragon, is when uh, Elliot jumps through the the wall of the school building and leaves Mm -hmm. that impression of, like, the the dragon. Uh, So that's what I thought of, like, the dragon could do. Uh, I love that one. But what what could Laurie tell me? about the or dragon. what could the dragon do yeah yeah i'm not sure what Lori could tell me um you know i just um i just like believing in fun things like this is is one of my things but at the same time it's not like i actually believe in them i don't know if that makes sense so what could mm-hmm. actually make me believe there's really like a hundred percent a real dragon here i just don't know i just don't know um it's i, I think i'd have to see that hole in the wall from the dragon hole in the wall is pretty good um i think i would still be skeptical with a hole in a wall because i'd be like uh you've rigged this wall you know with (laughs) with dragon explosives or whatever dragon shaped explosives but i think what would get me there is if i could get mary on command to get her dragon to like quick sear something that i was cooking like, I've got Ooh. this steak. I need it quick-seared. Get Elliot in here to quick-sear this steak. Oh. Like the climax of the film where he lights the wick of the of the lighthouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a yeah. great answer. I love I it. I think that would do so, it. Yeah. I actually didn't have that prepared. I thought of it while you were, while you were considering. Yeah. So. You know, I'd also really love it if, you know, uh, if we sent the dragon to go, you know, beat up on some abusive parents. I guess... We shouldn't do that. Just, you know, throw them into the water is enough. Yeah, just um, throw them into the water. Or the mud. The mud's really funny. Or the tar, apparently. Um, they get thrown <laughs> into so many different things in this movie. <laughs> so lucky. Excellent. All right. So that'll do it for Pete's Dragon. And we'll uh, chat at you next week for The Little Mermaid. Bye. Bye.